Welcome to the Business Chef Podcast, where we learn from the best about the business side of the food service industry. Do you make food? Then let us help you make money doing it. Want to connect with us? Check us out at Make Food Make Money on Instagram or Facebook, or email us info at businesschef.org. Welcome. Today is arguably one of the most important episodes that we could do dealing with food safety. Over $15 billion a year is spent in foodborne illness outbreaks in this country alone. So looking at, at a prime example of a concept such as like Chipotle. Chipotle recently has gone through some very troubled times. Uh, used to be able to buy Chipotle stock at around $50. Uh, back in the days when they first launched, and by 20, August 2015, it was right around $750. Quite the increase. But shortly thereafter, they had some foodborne illness outbreaks, and uh, their troubles with E. coli and norovirus. Next thing you know, their stock's down around $450 uh, by January 2016. So, can it cost you some money? Can it cost you your reputation? Can it cost you things that are much more important? People's lives? Absolutely. That's why it's important to understand it. And that's why today we have one of the foremost experts in this country to talk about it. With that said, let me introduce you to my good friend, Tom Johnson. Tom, you've had somewhat of an unconventional start in this business, um, both where you started and where you've ended up. Tell us a little bit about how you started and what brought you to the point you're at now. My father was a manufacturer's agent um, beginning in 1958. And um, back in that, at that time frame, uh, reps were pretty much uh, one, one man shows. So in any event, um, he became a manufacturer's agent and we children, I was one of six, the second oldest of six kids, uh, four sisters and a brother, um, we were the people that assembled the agency catalog uh, for my father, and then he'd take it out and visit all the dealers and architects. So um, naturally, when I got out of college, I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, so I got a degree in math and marketing from St. Thomas, graduated in 75, and uh, worked for more business forms for uh, five years, which I, I just loved. But it uh, became obvious I was going to have to move around quite a bit as I got promoted. My dad was under pressure to, um, you know, um, move out of the home and get an office and get some help. And so he asked me to join him in 1980. So getting into the food service business on the manufacturer side uh, or equipment manufacturer side, when did you then make the jump or what was the transition for you or the awakening moment, if you will, into uh, becoming an expert on on food safety and and kind of spending your career in that realm? My whole family has an autoimmune disorder, and um, it's really hard to put your fingers on uh, or identify, you know, exactly what it is. But one of the attributes of this disorder is that we have a vulnerability to certain organisms that other people don't have. And... um, So anyway, my older sister and I had attended a New Year's Eve party back in uh, 1983, um, just as it was switching in in 1984, and uh, the two of us became very ill afterwards the next day, 
And um, it ended up being um, monohepatitis. And it was transmitted uh, as hepatitis from um, somebody that had brought a punch to the New Year's Eve party, you know, an adult beverage. And uh, nobody else got sick. Uh, there were about 25 people at this party. It was just my sister and I, and she ended up in the hospital for many weeks and was extremely ill. Ended up being a trigger event for um, for lupus, uh, ultimately, and rheumatoid arthritis. Um, I had a fever that spiked at 105, and it was extremely frightening. Um, so I, I came out of the hospital a different person than going in. And... Um, what came out was somebody was pretty angry. Why did this happen to us? Um, you know, what's wrong with us? And they started asking a lot of questions um, that had I had no answers for. Uh, so uh, I was a speed reader by that time. I'd been professionally trained in grad school at the University of Minnesota. And so I started to read microbiology, chemistry, and uh, really dove into it and started to take uh, audit some courses, uh, I took uh, some classes from uh, Dr. Pete Snyder at Hospitality Institute in HACCP and ISO 22000, became uh, very proficient at it, and then also um, you know, was a member of the NRAQA executive study group, so I got to know all the directors and <clears throat> managers of food safety for the major uh, chains. And uh, I went to the NRA Education Foundation, met with Peter Good and was personally tutored by him through ServeSafe and became one of their instructors for many years. So um, that, that kind of got me going into food safety, and coincidental with that, I was uh, already quite deep in the commercial kitchen ventilation and fire suppression. And uh, I kind of had a realization, Sean, that um, there's a lot of similarities in the world of risk prevention between fire systems as well as, um, you know, protecting against disease transmission. And um, so anyway, that was kind of my introduction and the reason I get introduced to it. And I just kept pushing on it and got involved with um, UL and NSF and ASHRAE, uh, Minnesota Department of Health, uh, the State Fire Marshal's Office, um, read all the international codes and standards, uh, Codex Elementarius, et cetera, and um, had a genuine curiosity as to why so many of the codes had criteria that wasn't science-based. And um, that pulled me into the black hole of, um, of uh, code development and standards development. You absolutely are an expert in the field. There's no question about that. And I know that you're working on some very cool, very cutting-edge stuff. Tell us about that. Um, people, I don't know how many people are aware of this, but I've uh, divested myself of uh, the agency um, recently of the uh, manufacturer's rep agency. And, and this was um, all a part of a larger plan. And the plan was um, I, I found something back in 1999 that uh, kind of really rocked me to my core. And um, essentially what it was, was a technology that replaces the use of toxic chemical concentrates uh, with a non-toxic product, completely non-toxic you know, to the environment and people and animals and such, and yet 200 times more effective than bleach. And what was so astounding about it was the ingredients. Um, there were only two. One of them was purified water. The other one was purified salt. So it, it was a huge puzzle to me how you could have such inexpensive ingredients. Uh, you know, these are among the most common elements on, on our planet and certainly in all life forms, you know, salt and water. 
And uh, how is it that we can have a technology like this that isn't already commercialized and isn't mainstream? And so um, I continued to explore that. It was um, This all started with, um, I was consulting Hoshisaki back in 1999 uh, on their uh, system they call the ROCKS. And so they had hired me on a food safety project to better understand how they might be able to market this electrochemical activation system they had. So, um, so that's what kind of got me going in the field, and it's been a roller coaster ride ever since, Sean. Uh, I've had six different clients that are owners of intellectual property in the field of dilute brine electrolysis, which is the technical name for this form of electrochemistry. Through that, I've become quite expert at it. Um, coincidental with uh, developing expertise and ozone applications. And all this kind of culminated uh, for me, Sean, when um, the president of Dole Fresh Vegetables asked me to come out and take a very senior position at his company. You know, this was after the uh, big outbreak, uh, people might recall in 2006, the uh, problem with E. coli on spinach. And so after the executive team was relieved of their duties by the owner of the company, David Murdoch, he brought in uh, Ray DeRiggi from uh, the former CEO of ConAgra. He was familiar with um, a couple of papers I'd written on the topic way back when, and um, had a meeting with them, asked me to come out. I moved out to California for a year and uh, did a technology transfer project with them, which totally expanded my understanding of the the science um, and uh, how to properly apply it, you know, for um, rinsing fresh fruits and vegetables. And then, every other kind of surface you can imagine, from stainless steel surfaces to your hands to floors, um, equipment, whatever it might be. So so anyway, I've been chasing that since uh, 1998. We're at a point now where we have a new company that we started in 2015. It's called Cleantech, but instead of spelling clean with a C, we start with a Q for quality. And uh, plus it gave us something that was a unique name that we could go and get a trademark on. <laughs> so that was the other advantage. But uh, so, so anyway, Clean Tech Enterprises is in the business um, working with electrochemistry and bringing to market our own brands of electrochemical activation devices and ancillary systems. So our, our most recent big project <clears throat> was the installation at Columbia University Medical Center where we installed a one of our, uh, our our trade name is Pristine, and we installed a pristine water circuit um, for the uh, Columbia University Medical Center. And what this does is it completely prevents biofilm attachment throughout the entire loop, whether it's hot or cold. And um, essentially, the water is sterile because we're dosing it with um, electrolytically generated hypochlorous acid, which is one of the products produced in these um, these ECA machines. So cool. I think any operator out there who hears that we can find ways to use salt and water to make products that are 200 times more effective is pretty, pretty amazing. Um, you know, with that said, where do you think we are today? Where's, where's the food industry today? Um, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? And in regards to food safety specifically, what do you see right and what do you see that we could improve on? Well, well first off, if I were to describe the, the field and the climate, so to speak, of the current food industry, I'd say that fear is a great, is a huge factor. And um, what the fear is, is um, 
technology has taken aim at the food and beverage industry, and the incumbents are quite wary. So the, the incumbents would be, you know, whoever the manufacturers are of food products, of uh, retail distribution of food products and beverages and water and so on and so forth, whoever the incumbents are, you know, are, are extremely threatened by the uh, Amazons and the Alibabas, and rightly so, as you see, you know, people think that, you know, what a great move that Amazon's made uh, buying Whole Foods and getting into the food sector and everything else. Well, this is largely in response to Alibaba uh, because uh, they were deeply into food before Amazon, you know, before the acquisition of Whole Foods. So everyone's kind of shivering in their timbers, wondering, well, how is technology going to impact uh, our streams of revenue and our profitability? So, you know, formerly food safety was pretty much ignored. It was an unfunded mandate. People talked out of the sides of their mouths about it, but when it came time to funding it, it didn't happen. And really about the only time it would happen was after an outbreak. Uh, I think Jack in the Box is an excellent case. Um, they had a massive outbreak. People were killed. They could have easily have gone out of business. Uh, their board of directors chose instead to um, refund and finance the company to the extent that they brought in many of the most technical or best known technical experts in the field of food safety. And they've kind of become the model for food safety. But you know, it took a major event to get this to happen. It took huge losses in a court of law and, and major damage to the brand. Um, so what's changed today and what supports some of this fear is now the Department of Justice gets involved in foodborne disease outbreaks when there's deaths. And they have successfully prosecuted and jailed you know, the Peanut Corporation of America, their executives, the company's gone. So they certainly have the risk of losing their assets, but hey, they went to jail. So I, I think with the um, passage of FISMA, the Food Safety Modernization Act, and its impact on agriculture has had huge ripple effects into the retail food and food service sector, uh, some of which are perhaps spawned by the advent of 30 brand new uh, FDA food laboratories across the country each of which has whole genome sequencing. So this, this uh, WGS, this whole genome sequencing capability trumps, you know, the previous advanced tech for uh, being able to um, isolate uh, specific pathogens such as RT-PCR and, you know, pulse field gel electrophoresis and some of these other laboratory methodologies. And what it does is it gives you 100% certainty that a particular strain of an organism was within a given operator's custody. And with that comes a liability. Um, and so the risk um, landscape has changed dramatically in the retail food and food service industry. And I think operators are only awakening to this now. And unfortunately, oftentimes they, they awake to it on the wrong side of the bed where they've, they've got a big problem. It's in the media. They had a listeria monostogenous outbreak or staphylococcus harris or salmonella you know, should go and take your pick. Um, and then it's, um, then they're going to spend a massive amount of money to rebuild their reputation to the point that it was before they had the outbreak. So prevention is the key that has been unfunded in the past. And I see more and more operators, their boards, their CEOs and CFOs are the primary risk managers. And they awaken to the new risk, um, the responsible ones that don't plan to retire next year. Um, are, are making the investment 
And uh, so we, we do, we are seeing big progress in uh, food safety with uh, certain operators. I couldn't agree with you anymore. I, I really think that we've done some good things, but we still have a ways to go. And obviously, continuing to look at the future and how we progress with technology and making things safer for our, ourselves and our guests is really, at the end of the day, what we want to do. Speaking of which, uh, I know, you know, obviously the cruise industry's had its share of issues, and you've been a big part of solving some of those issues when it comes to food safety and norovirus outbreaks and things. Give us a little background on that. How did that come to be? How did you get involved in that situation in that uh, segment of the industry? Well, one of the things that happened, you know, as I was researching electrochemistry, um, this goes back to two decades now. So I was a consultant early on with uh, Sloan Bell, and uh, back when they were looking at the touch-free faucets and they were looking at the impact it could have in the industry and what the market share could be and all those types of things. So I was part of a think tank um, that was brought into Chicago to evaluate these things. And in the process, I met a number of other food safety experts and professionals, among which was a fellow who um, was a previous um, director of environmental health services out in Atlantic City. And uh, his client was uh, Seasons Entertainment. And so he happened to call me a week or so after we met where they had a major problem out in Las Vegas with the cook trail system in the basement of uh, Caesar's Palace and the authority of jurisdiction recognizing it as a reduced auction package process. <clears throat> Long story short, I was brought in and um, I made a recommendation and specified a time temperature monitoring control system that would meet the rules of evidence for their big cook trail system, the mother food banks, the daughter food banks, et cetera. And the only person I had to sell on this was a Clark County attorney, which I did. And uh, once uh, the county attorney was sold, um, it was done. And we put in a very nice and expensive, fault-tolerant um, time temperature monitoring control system with redundancy and, you know, <clears throat> a third-party data warehouse, a passive records, all the things needed to demonstrate either a reasonable standard of care in a court of law or demonstrate your negligence. If you failed in some way and, you know, with the kind of recording system we put in place, it's going to record whatever happens. Okay. So that was my introduction to developing also at the same time um, Clark County Health District asked for help in developing a biohazard remediation protocol for SARS. Because SARS was a big concern back in 2001 in Vegas. And so we started out with SARS, and then we added acute gastroenteritis, you know, as target pathogens for the protocols that we developed. And this ultimately ended up being the uh, Clark County Health District Biohazard Remediation Protocol. And uh, I was working with Sterilox at that time. So I had a couple contracts to design their equipment. And um, at the same time, we were designing the protocol applications. But uh, so once I was going with the um, major properties in Vegas and selling them machines for use in the garmage as well as in housekeeping for, you know, infection control purposes, um, it caught the attention of um, a, a risk management company out of Houston, and they were agents for uh, Lloyd's. And um, they uh, approached me, told me about some other clients they had, asked for permission to introduce me to them. They did. Um, the other clients, you know, other non-disclosure, non-circumventions with uh, both of them, but they were the two largest cruise companies on planet Earth. <clears throat> and um, 
So I introduced them to the technology, one of which ended up with an ATSI trial that was extremely effective. And um, we have an abstract from that that we chose not to publish um, because they wanted to keep, <laughs> keep it uh, to themselves. But uh, yeah, we put machines on these ships and we saw a reduction in disease transmission on the three vessels we were installed on as compared to the rest of the fleet. It was fairly significant. It was statistically significant. Um, so this was the introduction to the cruise industry and dealing with acute gastroenteritis, the most common form of which is norovirus. And it's responsible for two thirds of all human illness. Um, norovirus, uh, formerly known as the 24 hour flu, is uh, commonly transmitted uh, through food and it's a fecal oral route shot. So this is, you know, people not washing their hands properly, maybe they had diarrhea. And the, the symptoms of norovirus are you vomit so quickly. It, it happens before your brain tells your feet you should start moving towards the restroom, you're vomiting. So that's one of the characteristic symptoms. And, you know, the illness usually doesn't last very long, although you'll shed for, you know, up to five days after you're no longer symptomatic. So, um, yeah, you get on a cruise ship uh, with, uh, if there's 100 people on board the vet, let's say there's only 100 people, it's a small vessel, mm -hmm. okay? It's one of those river boats. You get on that vessel with 100 people and you bet that at least five of them are shedding norovirus, one strain or another. So um, imagine when you're on a vessel with 4,000 other passengers and 1,500 crew members. So it, it's always the bug of the day on a cruise ship where you get to hold the um, the operator accountable for your illness. Now, one one other thing I want to mention just before we leave that topic. Imagine how many people are made ill at airports or on airplanes, but they don't necessarily associate the illness with the meal that they ate 16 hours ago, you know, on the airplane or at the airport or any other venue. It could be a stadium. The reason the cruise industry takes the hit is because you're confined to the vessel for so long that there's no question that, you know, the exposure event happened on the vessel. But um, I can promise you that all these other venues, there's equally as much, if not more, transmission going on. It's just people aren't able to associate it with that particular place and the particular food they ate at this time. So given all of your experience, both with equipment, uh, food service, hospitality, and all the different segments of the industry, what does the kitchen of the future look like? What does food service of the future look like? Well, well first we have to talk about the, um, the mindset of the future and the menu of the future. Okay, so we're going to talk about food safety. So let's start out with a mindset. What will we do? know and do in the future that is not common knowledge today. And um, I think the single most important thing I could mention by far is we've never measured clean. You know, people have a tendency to, to say clean and disinfect in the same word. And in their mind, they associate cleaning with disinfecting. It is not. Disinfecting is not cleaning. And cleaning is not disinfecting. So what everyone needs to understand is that cleaning is decontamination in that um, when you spray on a sanitizer, you're disinfecting. It's an antimicrobial that you're disinfecting. In spite of what the big chemicals would tell you uh, in their marketing hyperbole and whatnot, um, you cannot clean and disinfect at the same time because the soil load that you pick up when you're cleaning inactivates the disinfectant. 
And so there's no predictability. And yet we allow them to make the claim that in one step you can clean a disinfect. That's always been baloney. Um, it's just not true. You have to decontaminate before you disinfect because we can't disinfect filth reliably. So, and yet all the big companies talk about as well, you know, we need to get a five log reduction here. We need to get a six log reduction if we're going to call it a food contact surface sanitizer. Um, you know, we have to get a six log reduction in uh, 30 seconds time with an organic load, you know, a 5% bovine or horse serum in our laboratory assay in order to call this product a disinfectant. This, this is in the U.S. now that I'm, I'm making these comments. So, so anyway, there's uh, complete ignorance as to what is clean. So let me ask you this, Sean, and, um, you know, we haven't prepared this or anything, but how would you define clean? <laughs> Jeez, put me on the spot here. Uh, let's see. I would say probably removal of visible contaminants or, you know, getting rid of things you can see. Thank you. That's an excellent, you know, that is the definition that FDA kind of gives to us. You know, it's free of visible soils, earth, film, blood, you know, those types of things. But notice that it's not quantitative. It's completely subjective. And so if I'm at a slicer and I'm slicing cheese all day or I'm slicing salami, I can get all the crumbs and the, you know, the gross contaminants off the slicer and it can look clean. And yet there's a film of fat on the blade and on the tray. And, um, I, you know, you can see it. Um, now, there could be organisms on that blade, too, with the fat. And when you spray an aqueous-based solution on it of any kind, what's, what's going to happen? It's aqueous-based. You just put it onto oil or a fatty surface. It's going to be repelled. If there's a pathogen present, Listeria monostogenes is the most common uh, target pathogen for ready-to-eat meats, as an example. So if I have uh, LM present, um, it's going to be protected from the disinfectant because of the surrounding transparent fat and oils, okay? So we can look at it, it looks clean, it's not clean. So that means that you can tell me all you wanna tell me about the safety data sheet and tell me all you wanna tell me about the label claims for this fantastic new quaternary ammonium compound or whatever you wanna be using for your disinfectant. It's irrelevant when I have an unclean surface. So the problem is, is that we have not had a measure, a quantitative, an accurate quantitative measure of clean. The problem really is, is we do have one. It's just we haven't recognized that if we don't use it, we can't clean properly. So we have to, we have to process validate clean, and we do that with adenosine triphosphate luminometers. Okay. Now you don't have to do this all the time, but if you don't know how hard you have to scrub to clean a particular surface. You're never going to get it clean, and you can spray all the sanitizer on that you want, and the chemicals will love you for doing it. They'll just tell you, well, do it twice or do it three times. Um, they make three times the money, of course, so that would be logical advice, but it doesn't do anything for reducing risk. So if you can't get a surface clean to the extent that, that you measure it to be clean, um, then you are not going to be successful reasonably. You can't reasonably expect you're going to disinfect it. Let me give you a couple examples, Sean. Recently, we did a remediation project 
for a, uh, a municipal police department. And they had a strategic operations command building. And we were contracted with to bring in our biohazard remediation team for a outbreak of, um, of staff arias, okay? And 20 of their personnel were made ill, all within what appeared to be about a two or three day period of time. So we go into this facility and um, of course, I've already shared with you that we always measure clean before we disinfect. I was in there with my subcontractors, which uh, this is a professional remediation crew. So these guys are expert at remediation after fire, floods, you know, hurricanes, those types of things. And they're, they're nationally known company. So uh, they're really good at what they do. But we go into this site and I start calibrating each one of their workers to how, how much they have to clean before they can get to 30 relative light units. So relative light units is a unit of measure. And each one of those units of measure for the different manufacturers of ATP meters is specific to that manufacturer. But in any event, our magic number, because this was not a reportable disease, we, we knew it was staff, but people were responding to courses of antibiotics. Um, we knew that everything had to be at a level of 30 relative light units or lower before we could spray on our, our analyte disinfectant spray. Well, some of these people who had been working for this company for 10, 12 years ended up having to clean surfaces five or six times before we got below 30 ROU. They were astounded. They've been cleaning surfaces their entire life, but nobody had ever measured the efficacy of the cleaning procedure before. Rather, the only measurement anybody had ever seen was microbiological assay, where they're doing total plate count or heterotrophic plate count in the lab. But that's not a measure of clean. That's a measure of sanitary or sterile. Sterile means you're completely free of all organisms. There are no viable cells. There's no viable organisms. Sanitary is uh, 10 to the 6, okay? 10 to the 6 reduction. <clears throat> so, Sean, I got another question I can ask you. Let's say that you know that salmonella, this particular strain of salmonella, on average has an effective dose of, let's say, 10,000 CFU. So a CFU is a colony forming unit, also known as a, a single organism, okay? So we've got 10,000 of these little bugs sitting on a surface. Uh, somebody tells me that uh, they have a, a, a disinfectant that gets a log reduction of um, 10 to the 6. Well, 10 to the 6 just means I have a 1 with 6 zeros after it. That's how many organisms I'm going to defeat. So that would be quite effective if I only had 100,000 organisms on a surface. And uh, so I can get the surface clean. It says it's clean. And now i got 10,000 organisms left. I put my disinfectant on it. Boom, they're toast. But what happens if you have a million organisms there or 10 million organisms there, which is entirely possible if you have more than a gram of fecal contaminant? Um, what good is a six-log reduction? Well, if you can't see the microorganisms, which, of course, we can't, then you don't know how much, how, you know, how big the load is, the organic load. So it's, it's really important, I think, for people to understand that you can only disinfect or sanitize clean surfaces. Um, and if you can't measure clean, you can't be sure that you're disinfecting properly. So it, it changes the way you view cleaning. Because it's hard. It's really difficult. But sanitizing is a piece of cake. We need to forget about sanitizing and disinfecting. Any of the approved sanitizers disinfectants work on a, on a clean, truly clean contact surface. So we need to change our focus. 
and stop thinking about brands and what their names are for the hand gels we use or, you know, um, the type of product we use for disinfection. We need to think and plan to keep things clean ongoing. And when we do that, we're going to be so much more effective in um, reducing risk of disease transmission. Good points. And with that in mind, what do you think the biggest mistakes that we're making right now are? Well, well, first off, let's let's talk about the biggest mistakes made by the food handlers. <clears throat> so, you know, let, we'll start with the chef and we'll work our way through the food handlers and the prep personnel, okay? Because they're the ones that are contaminating the food. Um, I mean, you know, 70% of the disease transmission uh, for acute gastroenteritis in a food establishment is, uh, according to CDC statistics, coming from the food handlers. So, gosh, it almost seems as if we have the food shields on the wrong side of the cafeteria counters. It's not the guests that are coughing, sneezing on the food, making people sick. Food handlers. So, you know, the question I'd have for chefs is, hey, chefs, what organisms do you suppose are on those towels that you're wearing on your waistband? I mean... Have you ever thought to take that out and have it sampled after a day of use? Because you're not going to like what you see. Um, Maybe we shouldn't be using reusable towels with chefs. Maybe they should have wipes, and those wipes have a a shelf life of use. And they're not carrying on the apron. Uh, They're at the point of contamination, and there's a fresh one whenever it's needed. And when you're finished decontaminating the cutting board or the surface, um, when you're finished doing that, you're going to disinfect it. Now, if it's a plate and you got a spot of soup in the wrong place uh, so it doesn't look proper or clean, uh, you want to use a single use to clean that piece of food off there so it looks pretty, not your filthy towel that has, um, you know, some chicken juice on it or from raw chicken or, or blood from meats or whatever it might be. So, you know, oftentimes I think that we have the best of intentions in the back of the house. It's where the biggest mistakes are made, uh, both for personal hygiene. Um, you know, I got another good one for you. Let's say that you're um, you're at a sandwich prep table. You're making sandwiches. You got your, your gloves on, whether they're nitrile or whatever you're wearing. And you're slicing the bread. So you got a knife hand, You got a knife right there with a handle. And you're, you're um, putting in the lettuce and you're filling that sub sandwich for your guest. And uh, all of a sudden you, you ran out of an ingredient. So you need more um, shredded cheese or whatever. So what do you do? You're going to open up the door of the undercounter refrigeration piece or pull the drawer handle. You're going to get some more cheese. Are you going to change your glove and wash your hands as you do this? Probably not. Uh, in fact, let's just say no. And then, um, then you're going to turn around and you're going to put that and you're going to continue to work. Now, does anybody ever wash or sanitize or even look at the door pull on the undercounter refrigerator? No. We know this because we've brought in industrial hygienists and swabbed multiple facilities in the kitchens and healthcare as well as elsewhere just to prove the point of where the major points of contamination are and where they aren't. So oftentimes we clean the same surfaces over and over and over again, thinking that's where the point of contamination is, but we really didn't uh, understand the flow of ingredients and food and points of contamination in between. So one could say that we tend to only have critical control points that are based upon cooking temperatures or cooling temperatures. 
But we also need to have critical control points for the prevention of cross-contamination. And so it's almost like, you know, before you open up the door that undercounter refrigerator, maybe you want to grab a tissue and open it with the tissue and throw the tissue away because your hands have food, food on them, your gloves. There's food on the exterior. You don't want to drive that into the door handle. Who's going to clean it? If you're going to clean it and sanitize it after use, fine. But you're probably going to tell me it's not your job. It's your night crew's job or something to do that. So there's a whole bunch of things like that, Sean, that I think people need to start focusing on. Because if we focus on where the points of transmission are or are most likely, we're more likely to be effective in, um, you know, our ongoing cleaning protocols and then also making sure that we properly inform and educate the, the cleaning crew or the sanitizing crew at night of what they need to pay attention to. So here you go. Here's the million-dollar question or even billion-dollar question possibly. What is the real cost of a foodborne illness? Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, it, it depends. It depends upon the outbreak, how many people are injured. It depends upon the media. Um, it depends upon the courts. You know, who the attorneys are. Um, I would say um, it has been the end of some businesses, some very, very large. PCA was a huge business, and they're gone, and uh, their leadership is in jail. Um, There's other very large companies that have gone out of business um, or taken severe financial hits and taken years for the brands to recover. So I, I think what it is is that Operators need to know that you can have the, the very best management team, and if they miss the risk of a foodborne illness, if they risk, um, you know, if they fail to invest in food safety, you know, here's a, a key concept I think everybody needs to understand. The objective in court is to demonstrate a reasonable standard of care. So no one's there to deny that there was a foodborne illness. No one's there to deny that perhaps, you know, the data indicates that unequivocally it happened in your facility, your licensed food service establishment. But when you get to court, if you have the data to prove your reasonable standard of care, you don't get separated from your assets. And so I I think that's really the objective is uh, as, as we push towards prevention, we understand there's no such thing as zero risk. There's always going to be a risk of disease transmission of accidents happening or a cascade of events occurring one after another that leads to the outbreak and leads to a death or what have you. What doesn't need to be there is um, ignorance and ambivalence. Um, And so if you're able to demonstrate that you did everything you could do in order to prevent transmission of this disease, um, then you're going to be exonerated in court and you'll still have your strict liability, but you won't have the damages associated with negligence. So these, these are, are really some of the, the keys. Um, what I see happening in the industry today is a massive move towards automation. And it has to do with machines don't have fingers. Machines don't come with cultural differences. Um, they're quite reliable. They're at work all the time. Uh, you know, they don't have medical insurance. They just have preventive maintenance program. And when you have a routine task and they can be replaced by automation, then uh, I see operators seeking to do that. So whether it's um, dishwashing in the scullery area where you got a robot doing it instead of um, all kinds of people and heat and, 
you know, problems in the dishroom, whether it's uh, flipping hamburgers, uh, whether it's a uh, food preparation. Ultimately, I see less and less human hands, whether they're gloved or not, coming in contact with foods and more and more automation with automated uh, cleaning and disinfection, clean in place, clean out of place, in place cleaning, um, you know, et cetera, going on. And in fact, Sean, I have three clients in the Bay Area, all of which are robotics experts coming from the IT industry, one of which was the inventor of the Roomba, um, and um, she has her own shop and um, has developed a robot in the uh, in the scullery area. I see um, all kinds of automations and technology coming into the kitchen that uh, we'll, we'll still need face-to-face contact with guests. You know, we're still going to need the personal touch and the ambiance and everything else. But what we don't want are any more handmade sandwiches. We, we, <laughs> we don't want hand scoop this. or um, Hands are filthy. And there's a long, long history of, people just not being able to keep them clean and sanitary. So the less hand contact, the less human contact our foods have, the more likely we won't get a foodborne illness. Tom, my good man, you are a wealth of knowledge. And if people want even more of that knowledge, if they want to reach out and connect with you, how do you suggest doing that? Uh, JRS risk. <clears throat> So that's J-R-S-R-I-S-K dot com. And we're, we're uh, redoing that now because the consulting is becoming a bigger and bigger part of um, what I'm personally doing. Um, and so the other thing is just call me so I can give you my cell phone. It's uh, 651-587-0418. Or you can text me at that same number. I'm on LinkedIn also. Um but um, or you can contact you, Sean. I think you have my number. <laughs> Thanks again, Tom. And final thought, what are you working on today or what is your focus in making a difference today? The last thing I would say along those lines is in the past five years, we've developed a lot of competence and expertise in healthcare, HHS, CMS rules, NFP 101, the application of those rules and uh, best practices that go pretty far beyond the minimum compliance requirements of those rules. So healthcare and uh, uses in healthcare and healthcare facilities has really become, I'd say it's probably 50% of our business today. Tom, you are such a good man, and I appreciate you spending your time with us today. I think I can speak for everyone listening that we've definitely learned a thing or two. Hey, thanks for sticking around. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, or anyone who's interested in making food and money. And when you get a second, give us a review. It really helps us get the word out as well as letting us know how we're doing. Want to connect with us? Check us out at Make Food, Make Money on Instagram or Facebook. Or email us, info at businesschef.org. This Business Chef podcast was brought to you by the Culinary Technology Fund. To find out more about how you can make a difference in the lives of culinarians as well as creating a more sustainable food service industry, email us info at businesschef.org with Culinary Technology Fund in the subject line.